Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 343. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was saying I was going to kind of start on the bandwagon for donations and everything like that, just for like a month's kind of long. I'm going to put it off till next week. Things have been moving so fast, so you're getting a respite. You've got one week's respite there. But just remember, you know what I mean? We hitting his hard there for a month. But I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, we have Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news for June. Then we have one of the 2014 Hugo nominee stories. Yes, The War That Falls On You From Nowhere by John Chu. And it's actually re- narrated by John as well. So how cool is that? So that's what's coming in today's show. And I'll tell you why it's all a little bit of a kind of, I'm so thankful Adam's there in the background there, just plugging away week in, week out, getting the stories and getting the notes up, because I've just honestly today turned up to the computer, switched it on and started. Well, actually, don't switch on the things on. I don't think I've never knocked this off since I've got it. But things, it's the World Cup. I'm now just drowning in me sorrows. England's out of the World Cup. First time we've been knocked out at this early stage. So... It's now France, people of France, that's where my money's going now. I know some of you will not be following football, but just think of us poor English there, I've just been totally knocked out as well. Oh man, terrible. <laughs> anyway, Jim, can you enlighten us with some science news, sir, make us feel a bit happier? Greetings and oppositional transpositions, my mitotically vigorous listeners. And welcome to this June 2014 Science News Update. I'm your host for this groundbreakingly trend-delicious science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. I have so much hyper-cool stuff for this month's segment that I will waste no time, and I will just get to it. The first two stories of the month fall into the realm of physical science. First up, a world record, a galactic record, uh... 
an astronomical record? I, I don't know. Um, it's some kind of record, though. Astronomers have discovered the planet with the longest year ever detected. They've actually called this a real planet, not an asteroid with a huge orbit, or a planetary dwarf like poor old Pluto has become. The planet was reported by Dr. Marie-Eve Naud and her research group from the University of Montreal in last month's May issue of the Astrophysical Journal. The name of the planet is GUPSCB. Not so poetic as astronomical names used to be, huh? It's nearly 156 light years from Earth, and it likes to keep its distance from its primary star. GU orbits 2,000 times farther out from its cool red sun than Earth does around good old Sol, making it the longest planetary orbit yet discovered. One year on GUPSCB, which sits in the constellation Pisces, and hence the PSC designation, lasts nearly 163,000 Earth years. Naud's group spotted the planet as a speck of infrared light following its sun across the sky. The planet glows in infrared because it's quite young. It just seems to be 70 to 100 million years old, and it's still cooling. The authors suggest that due to GU's young age and easy detectability, it'll make a valuable comparison planet for any new companions that might be uncovered by future planet-finding studies. The next story reminds me of something out of Star Trek The Next Generation. Remember the holodecks with the so-called hard light? I always had mixed feelings about the holodeck, or space danger room, for all you X-Men fans out there. I love the idea of having a fully interactive virtual environment that was also not really virtual. I thought the idea of using it for a martial arts training program, or even the doctor on Voyager, was brilliant. But the technology always left me kind of cold. I mean, I felt the same thing when I watched the later seasons of the uh, Brit SF comedy classic uh, Red Dwarf. When Rimmer got his hollow projector to be hard light, I had to actively ignore something and to me made no sense whatsoever. How could photons be made solid? Light was light. Partly a wave, partly a particle, but still without any mass. You can't make mass out of something that has no mass. Well, it may be I was wrong, I admit it. They haven't done it yet, but in the newest issue of the journal Nature Photonics, Dr. O.J. Pike of Imperial College in London describes how to turn light into matter through a number of steps. Pike and his lab group have worked out how to make matter from pure light and are drawing up plans to demonstrate the feat within the next 12 months or so. First, let's make this clear. These guys are not proposing to make anything out of light, like a sword or even a button. They will not be creating any everyday object very soon from a sudden blast of laser energy. The kind of matter they intend to generate comes in the form of subatomic particles, completely invisible to the eye. The original idea was hypothesized by two U.S. physicists, Gregory Bright and John Wheeler, way back in 1931, they worked out that sometimes two photons could combine to produce an electron and its antimatter equivalent, a positron. Electrons are negatively charged particles of matter that form the outer shells of atoms in just about everything in the universe. Bright and Wheeler never thought that their hypothesis would be tested in any kind of practical manner. They thought that the process was so rare and hard to produce 
that it would be hopeless to try to observe the pair formation in any laboratory experiments, quote-unquote. In this new paper, Pike states, quote, The Bright-Wheeler process was one of the most elegant demonstrations of Einstein's famous relationship that shows matter and energy are interchangeable currencies. It's the simplest way matter can be made from light and one of the purest demonstrations of E equals mc squared, unquote. Here are Pike's proposed steps to making matter from light. First, fire electrons at a slab of gold to produce a beam of high-energy photons. Next, fire a high-energy laser into a tiny gold capsule called a Hohlraum. That's from the German meaning empty room. This produces light as bright as the sun. In the final stage, they send the first beam of photons into the Hohlraum where the two streams of photons collide. Pike's calculations suggest that if he can get enough particles of light with high enough energies into a small enough volume, he can create around 100,000 electron-positron pairs. Pike says this result is part of a theory called quantum electrodynamics, QED. The theories behind QED were developed in the run up to the Second World War. Pike says, quote, you might call it the most dramatic consequences of QED, and it clearly shows that light and matter are interchangeable, unquote. Pike finishes the paper by saying, a successful demonstration will encourage physicists who have considered building photon-photon colliders as tools to study how subatomic particles behave. The best thing about that kind of collider is that it could be used to study fundamental physics with a very clean experimental setup. Pure light goes in and matter comes out. The experiment would be the first demonstration of this, unquote. I really love this idea, but I feel like my personal energy mass converter for making Earl Grey tea is just as far away as my flying car was decades ago when I first read Tom Swift. Anyway, next story. This one has an edge of both Frankenstein and Dracula to it. Frankenstein, because it involves something that many people would consider moving into the area of extreme body horror, and Dracula, because, well, it involves blood. There are three new studies. Three! One in Nature Medicine and two in the Journal Science in the last month that have all shown that, quote, young blood reverses age-related impairments in cognitive function and synaptic plasticity in mice, unquote. That's the title of the paper from Nature Medicine by Dr. Saul Valeda of the University of California at San Francisco. What does it mean? In short, all three papers, the latest included, have found that young blood can keep an old brain sharp. Plasma or blood from a young mouse, or even a single protein from the plasma, rejuvenates sluggish bodies and minds in a host of ways. If this sounds like the plot of some medical drama slash political thriller, I agree, and I hope it never gets to that point, the latest paper found the general result that young blood recharges old neurons, improving mice's ability to learn and remember things. The other two papers in science actually find the one protein in blood that seems to have the majority of the effect to do this. Valeda and company, in 2011, reported that old blood can harm young mouse brains. They found this out by surgically linking the circulatory system of an old mouse to that of a young one, allowing their blood to mingle. That is the Frankenstein part of the story. In the newest paper, they switched things around to determine the effect of young blood on old mice. 
18-month-old mice, the rodent equivalent of about 55 to 70 years of age in a human, were tethered to three-month-old mice, the equivalent of a 20 to 30-year-old. The infusion of young blood kicked off a cascade of changes in the behavior of genes important for neuron behavior. Neurons sprouted more docking places for other neurons to connect, a property of healthy neurons in young brains. These changes were not present in old control mice that had been surgically connected to other old mice. Even directly injecting old mice with plasma from young mice created benefits. After receiving intravenous injections of young plasma eight times over 24 days, old mice were better at remembering the location of a hidden platform and responded more strongly to a scary environment. This compared with old mice that had received injections of plasma from other old mice. None of these improvements occurred when the plasma was heated before it was injected. Now, this is an important test because it determines if whatever the active ingredient was a protein or not. You see, when you heat proteins up to a high temperature, they break down and stop functioning. So it turns out it was proteins that were helping these old mice stay young. Of course, a protein is pretty much useless to a vampire for keeping them youthful by drinking. Proteins are degraded in our digestive tracts and would never reach the bloodstream. So vampires never had quite the right idea. So what protein is this? Well, there is where some controversy comes in. But the science studies I mentioned earlier identify one such contender, a protein called GDF11. Normally, the amount of GDF11 goes down as we age. Dr. Amy Wagers of Harvard and her group found that the injection of this molecule partially mimics some of the gains in the brain that were made with the blood transfusions from young to old. In the brain, GDF11 alone remodeled brain blood vessels and enhanced the birth rate of new cells in the subventricular zone where active nerve cell growth occurs. The reason this result is controversial is because it's unlikely that GDF11 works by itself. Wagers says, quote, Perhaps the benefits come from both a boost in positive ingredients in young blood and a reduction of harmful ingredients in old blood. It's possible that inflammatory molecules that rise with age may be being cleared away more aggressively. Unquote. I guess that one day, designer molecules may stave off decline in our entire bodies, but it seems to me that a lot more work needs to be done to reach that point. And I don't see them starting human experiments very soon, given their results. But Dr. Valeda has started a biotechnology company and plans to test the effects of plasma from young donors on people with Alzheimer's disease. He hopes to get started in the next few months. Next story. Is the Y chromosome relevant? Heck yeah, it is relevant. For years there have been controversies about the human male Y chromosome. It's been said that it's pointless. It's been said it's nothing more than a skeletal version of the X chromosome. It's been said it's a pale imitation of the X. It's been said that it is doomed evolutionarily and will soon be lost. Well, congratulations to Dr. Henrik Kosman of the University of Lucerne, who has finally put all that nonsense to rest in a couple of papers in Nature from this May. Kosman has shown that the Y chromosome is not just a stripped-down version of the X. The Y genes are involved in a core set of genetic processes, including transcription and translation. 
Caseman developed an approach to directly target and assemble the actively expressed parts of the male-specific Y chromosome on the basis of high-throughput sequencing of transcriptomes and genomes from both sexes. His group assembled male mRNA messages from male-specific sequencing reads not mapped onto the female reference genomes and confirmed Y identity using the whole genome sequence data. The researchers detected genes with little or no expression by screening that male-specific genomic data with Y genes from other species. Then they sequenced the chromosome genes to ensure that they were actually there on the Y chromosome and compared it to published Y chromosome sequences. The idea behind this genetic subtraction approach is that the only difference between males and females at the genomic level is the Y chromosome. Caseman says, quote, If we remove from a male genome all the DNA sequences that are shared with female genome, we would end up having only those genes that are located exclusively on the Y chromosome. Initially, we did not apply the subtraction approach at the genomic level, but rather at the transcriptome level based on extensive RNA sequencing data for representatives of all major mammalian lineages, which allowed us to directly target exonic Y sequences, unquote. Uh, Translation? At first, we only looked at differences of what mRNA was being expressed in males versus females, but then we realized we needed to look at differences in the DNA between males and females. Caseman applied their subtraction approach to sequencing data. They collected for 10 mammals and analyzed available Y sequences, tracing that evolution in 15 mammalian species. They identified 134 different Y protein-coding genes in the 10 species, thus approximately doubling the number of previously known Y genes. He also uncovered three independent sex chromosome originations in mammals and birds. The sex chromosomes of humans and other therians, there's your word for the day, therian is a subclass of mammals that give birth to live young without using a shelled egg. In this modern age of ours, most mammals are now therians. But at one time, that wasn't true and most mammals laid eggs before they split from the monotremes, that is, the egg-laying mammals like the platypus. According to Caseman, the original Therian Y chromosome contained the sex-determining genes and emerged about 180 million years ago at the same time as the monotreme Y chromosomes. A lot of the genes in the Y chromosome have endured for millions of years, with gene decay proceeding rapidly early on, but then leveling off. The Therian Y genes have kept their early sex chromosome expression patterns, but expression levels have decreased over time, and some Y genes evolve new functions, primarily through changes in spatial or temporal expression patterns. The researchers found that the current Y genes are specialized for transcription and translation regulation, suggesting that they were preserved, at least initially, to maintain ancestral gene dosage. That is, to ensure that males and females kept the same level of genetic activity. Caseman states, The same type of genes were retained in different sex chromosome systems, which highlight that it is crucial for male viability that certain types of genes are kept in two copies in males, on the X chromosome and on the Y chromosome as these genes likely regulate functions of many other genes in various somatic tissues, unquote. He goes on to say that, quote, we had all thought that the Y chromosome was just a highly degenerated X chromosome, 
retaining only a few genes that were necessary for male function. The surprising finding is the number of genes on the Y chromosome that are involved in transcription and translation regulation, rather fundamental processes that apply to all cells. That means that the Y probably plays a role in many of the male-female differences, whereas the old view was that the Y simply starts the cascade of male determination, and then all else that follows is basically just hormonal, unquote. All the chromosome findings suggest that the gene content of the Y became specialized through selection to maintain the ancestral dosage of homologous XY gene pairs that function as broadly expressed regulators of transcription, translation, and protein stability. Caseman finishes with, quote, Based on the findings of our study, the surviving genes on the human Y chromosome are an elite set, since these Y genes all differ slightly from their counterparts on the X. They could be subtly optimized for males, unquote. One of the things that Caseman and his group really want to do is use the differences in Y and X chromosomes to examine the basis of disease differences in males and females. There are a lot of diseases that differ in prevalence between males and females, and nobody really knows why. Chromosome differences and differences in gene regulation could be one place to start to find out why those disease differences have arisen. Next story. Konstantin Kordev from Clemson University has found the answer to a paradox that you probably didn't even know existed. Remember that old saw that bumblebees should not be able to fly because they're aerodynamically unstable? Frankly, I have no idea whether it's true or not. But there's another insect who, according to physics, should not be able to do something that it does regularly. And that's the butterfly. According to calculations, the butterfly proboscis should not be able to drink nectar from flowers because there's no way that a butterfly could generate enough sucking power to move the liquid up that straw-like appendage. The insect would have to paradoxically produce sucking pressures of more than one atmosphere to draw up sugary liquids. Korneff published a paper this month in the Journal of Experimental Biology that examines just how butterflies can drink at all. He and his colleagues wondered whether the insects were overcoming these challenges by flexing and moving the proboscis to alleviate the constriction and reduce the pressures required. After filming how the proboscis moved while the butterflies sucked, the team saw that the insects used a combination of four strategies. First, they splay the tip of the proboscis. Second, they slide both sides of the tube back and forth. Third, they pulse the proboscis. And finally, they press the tip against the surface that the droplet is sitting on. If you find that hard to picture in your head, then you're not alone. I am having a great deal of difficulty seeing that in my mind. But at the very least, you get the idea that all that movement is very complex. Horneff suspects that all these factors aid the passage of fluid through the proboscis by widening the tapered tip, altering the way in which the meniscus of the fluid travels along the structure and augmenting the sucking power of the mouth pump to reduce the suction required to pull the fluid through the proboscis. Okay, I usually save the most titillating story for last, and the final story of the night certainly falls into that category. 
For those of you listening with children, or if you're of a sensitive nature, then you may want to just skip a couple of minutes ahead in the Sofa podcast, back to Tony, or just give up if listening to the archive version of the show. Why? Because we're going to be talking about genitals. Most unusual genitals. Okay, here we go. We think we know what a male and female is, and no, this story is not about transsexuals or transgender people, or intersexed people for that matter. This is a story about genitals as they are sometimes found in nature. Mammals, and even most animals, fit into our little boxes very clearly of what makes males and females. I will be blunt and define it as males have the penises and females have the vaginas, or pouch-like openings of some kind. The male has the organ of intromission. Don't you love how science can make anything, even sex, sound academic? In short, males the pitchers and females the catchers. But what if this were reversed? Is that even possible? Well, the answer is yes. In certain animals, specifically the Brazilian cave woodlouse, it is reversed. Dr. Kazunori Yoshizawa of Hokkaido University in Sapporo reports in the May 5th issue of the journal Current Biology, then the woodlouse, Neotrogla, that the genital shapes are reversed. The female woodlouse extends a skinny structure up to 15% the length of her body to retrieve sperm from the male's vaginal-like pouch. Depending on the species, a female barklouse can spend up to 70 hours extracting sperm. The females use the sperm to fertilize their eggs and additionally absorb nutrients from the accompanying seminal fluid into their bodies, accomplishing both sexual and nutritive acts at once. Males still have a penis-like remnant, but they can't deliver sperm with them. The female louse penises have also copied male penises of some species because they are heavily spined. Yoshizawa says, quote, the spines may help a female louse anchor her organ inside the male. The males have pouches with bulges to accommodate the spines. Those bulges may reduce the damage to the males. When the female inserts her penis, it inflates and remains firmly attached. Once we tried to separate a coupled pair by force, the male's body broke in two, but female and male genitals remained connected." Unquote. On this point, he goes on to comment, quote, The gripping power is just one of the features that distinguishes the cave lice penis from the few other known examples of insertable female organs. A female seahorse inserts a tube into a male pouch, but she's not retrieving sperm, just inserting eggs for the male to fertilize and carry to term. Some female beetles can push out a bit of the ducts leading to their sperm storage organs, and some female mice extend a tube that is quite long, actually. The Neotrogla female penis is notable, however, for being the spiniest, unquote. Neotrogla is a recent addition to the world's known insect genera. It was first described in 2010 based on specimens collected from harsh, dry caves in eastern Brazil, explored by Rodrigo Lopez Ferrara of the Federal University of Lavras, well, I think this is pretty cool, but aside from the wow-how-bizarre factor, there is more to the story that tells us a lot about evolution and selection. 
This genital role reversal is important because it's the exception that proves the rule of sexual selection. How much each sex invests in reproduction affects how choosy that sex is. If male cave lice are bundling a lot of their tiny sperm and extras into huge nutritious packages in a nearly barren environment, the male could become the choosy one and the female the wanton and sexually more aggressive one. And in fact, that's exactly what Yoshizawa says is happening among the woodlouse. The females are sexually much more aggressive than the males of the species. All of this just goes to show that as much as we think we know about biology, it will throw us a curve way too often that shows us how ignorant we truly are of what's out there. This universe is just so much more varied and complex than we can possibly imagine. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Remember that woodlice females are the ones that like football more. The Y chromosome is important, despite what some of those radicals insist. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go. What a, what a star. Jim, thank you so much. So next up is the main fiction, and like I say, it's one of the stories that are up for the 2000 Hugo nominee, The Water That Falls On You From Nowhere by John Chu, and it was originally published by Tor, one of the originals Tor's doing as well. So how cool is that? Tor, a big thank you to them for letting us play this, and a big thank you to John as well, and, you know, good luck. I'll give you a little heads up about John. John Chu is a designer of Designs Microprocessors by day and writes fiction, narrates for podcasts and translates from Chinese into English by night. His stories have been published or are forthcoming in the Boston Review, Asimov Science Fiction, Apex and Tor.com amongst others. And like I say, John's narrating this story as well. So a big thank you to John putting out all the stops there. And again, big thank you to Tor.com for letting us play this story. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Water That Falls On You From Nowhere by John Chu. The water that falls on you from nowhere when you lie is perfectly ordinary, but perfectly pure. True fact. I tested it myself when the water started falling a few weeks ago. Everyone on Earth did. Everyone with any sense of lab safety, anyway. Never assume any liquid is just water. When you say, I always document my experiments as I go along, enough water falls to test, but not so much that you have to mop up the lab. Which lie doesn't matter. The liquid test is distilled water every time. Uttering the sentence is false, or some other paradox, leaves you with such a sense of angst, so filled with the sense of impending doom that most people don't last five seconds before blurting out something unequivocal. So, of course, holding out for as long as possible has become the latest craze among drunk frat boys and hard men who insist on root canals without an anesthetic. Psychologists are finding the longer you wait, the more unequivocal you need to be to ever find solace. Gus is up to a minute now, and I wish he'd blurt something unequivocal. He's neither drunk nor a frat boy. His shirt, soaked with sweat, clings to a body that has spent 27 too many hours a week at the gym. His knees lock stiff, his jeans stretched across his tensed thighs. His face shrinks as if he were watching someone smash kittens with a hammer. It's a stupid game. Maybe in a few weeks the fad will pass. I don't know why he asked me to watch him go through with it this time, and I don't know why I'm actually doing it. Watching him suffers like being smashed to death with a hammer myself.
At least Gus is asking for it. I know I'm supposed to be rooting for him to hold on for as long as possible, but I just want him to stop. He's hurting so much and I can't stand to watch anymore. I love you, Matt. Gus's smile is radiant. He tackles me onto the couch and smothers me in a kiss, and at first, I kiss him back. Not only does no water fall on him, but all the sweat evaporates from his body. His shirt is warm and dry. A light spring breeze from nowhere covers us. He smells of flowers and ozone. This makes me uneasier than if he'd been treated to a torrent. That, at least, I'd understand. I'd be sad, but I'd understand. He's unbuttoned and unzipped my jeans when my mind snaps back to the here and now. It's not that his body doesn't have more in common with Greek statues than actual humans. It's not that he can't explicate Socrates at lengths that leaves my jaw unhinged. It's that not only did I love you, Matt, pull him out of his angst, but it actually removed water. Fundamental laws of physics do that. Profound theorems of mathematics do that. I love you, Matt, doesn't count as a powerful statement that holds true for all space and time. Except when Gus says it, apparently. Wait! I let go of him. My hands reach down to slide to a sit. Gus stops instantly. He skittered back before my hands have even found the couch cushions. His head tilts up at me. This is the man who seconds ago risked going insane to feel soul-rending pain for fun. How can he suddenly look so vulnerable? Oh, if there's anything Gus can do, it's put up a brave front. He does that stony-faced thing where his mouth is set in a grim straight line better than anyone I know. But behind his hard blue eyes, I can see the fear that's not there even when some paradox rips him apart. Best to take the pain now. I'm half convinced nothing can actually hurt him, even when he's afraid it might. It only hurt him more later. That's some display you did there, Gus. I'm stalling. Stop that. I don't love you. Not as much as you obviously love me. The water that falls on you from nowhere is freezing cold. I slip on the couch, but it just falls. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Follows me. When it's this much water, it numbs you to the bone. I want to scream, what the fuck? But if I even breathed, I drown. Gus tries to shield me, blocking my body with his, but not even he's fast enough. I try to push him out of the downpour. However, he's a mixed martial artist, and I'm not. We share everything after the initial shock. The torrent lasts for seconds. 
We're both soaked and he's laughing so hard he's fallen off the couch, doubled over on the wet floor, flopping like a fish. I feel like I should be insulted, but his laughter is joyous. It's like the peal of giant bells, low booms that vibrate through you and make everything in the room rattle. I can't tell if those are tears on his face or just the water from nowhere. My body shakes so hard I can't stand. The cushions squeak around me, keeping me bathed in ice-cold water. Gus stands up. He's not even shivering. He picks me up, wraps me in his arms, then kisses me gently on the forehead. I I'm sorry, Gus. I, I just ruined your couch. The floor is covered in rubber weightlifting mats. I'll mop that up once I can move again. This just sends him into another fit of laughter, more controlled this time. His hands are gentle around my waist. Without them, I'm pretty sure I'd crash onto the floor. You've just told me you love me, and I think the only way you can, and you're worried about the couch? Coming from anyone else, that sentence would make me feel too stupid to live. Still, he has a point. I fumble, but can't find any words to answer. It'll dry off. Besides, you bought the couch for me. Biotech engineers make more money than personal trainers, even the world's most overqualified ones. Who knew? Rather than actually moving in together, I've been slowly furnishing his apartment. Gus has patiently assumed that once the apartment no longer looks like a cross between a library and a weight room, I'll move in. He's long offered to move in with me, but I don't want him to. My efficiency isn't worthy of him. It's just a body locker. I should clean up the mess I made. I pull away and Gus catches me before I fall. He literally sweeps me off my feet. Stop fretting. It's okay. We get out of our wet clothes in the bathroom and huddle together under blankets in bed. It isn't until he starts shivering that I realize that he's just as cold as I am. The mixed martial artist has just been more heroic or stupid about it. You know, Gus's voice is surprisingly steady given how his teeth chatter. Now that we know how we feel about each other, how about we solemnize the relationship? Make it official. My brow furrows so tightly it hurts. He's serious. As lightly as he's tossed it off, he meant it. You risked permanent insanity just to ask me to marry you? Honestly, there are less life-threatening ways. No, that was just training. He's not joking. I can't imagine life without you. You can't imagine life without me. Say yes. The air stays resolutely dry. He could have made it all one big question to avoid letting whatever makes the waterfall half a say. My family... I have no idea how to broach this. It's totally possible for him to love me and still never want to see me again. They know about me, right? I swear the man reads minds. Yes? It's not a lie, but it's not the truth, either. The air gets distinctly humid. My arm hairs stand on end as if thunder were about to strike. I'm still shivering from my last lie. My mind is in tatters torn between the cruel truth that will make him lose all respect for me and the blatant lie that will plunge me into fatal hypothermia. The pang that gnaws at my heart grows and spreads. It wrings me, twisting and squeezing the life out of me. I jerk my face into what I want to be a smile. Matt, this isn't a root canal. Don't stretch it out. Whatever you have to say, it's okay. I take a deep breath. The release of saying something true, though, warms as if I were buried in Gus's arms on a winter's night and we were the only people in the world.
No wonder all the cool kids suspend themselves between truth and lie. However, rehearsing the speech for months in my head has not helped one bit. The words rush out so quickly. I'm not even sure what I'm saying. Mandarin doesn't have gender-specific third-person pronouns. Well, the written language does, but it's a relatively recent invention, and they all sound the same. And no one really uses the female and neuter variants anyway. And it's not like there aren't words for boyfriend or girlfriend, but I always refer to you as Iron. It means sweetheart, lover. Spouse and never using your name isn't all that unusual. Names are for friends and acquaintances. Members of your family referred to by title. When Gus interrupts me, the only thought in my mind is, did I just tell him I call him my spouse to my parents? Wait, slow down. Gus's intellect trains on me like a sharpshooter. The way you talk about me to your family, we might as well be married. Yes, my stomach is in my throat. The world bobbles around me, and I'm stumbling at a cliff's edge. But they don't know my name, or that I'm male. Yes, his bullet strikes my heart, and I've just crashed on the rocky shore. Hmm. He wears his "I'm going to fix this" face, but then it hardens into that grim, stony thing that breaks my heart. He nudges himself against me, then holds me as if only I can fit in that gap between his arms and chest. We can't marry until you're ready to come out to your family. I'll wait as long as you want. His skin transforms from cold and clammy to warm and dry. He uses declarative sentences. The truth of each one is obvious. No weasel words or qualifiers. Instead of being soaked in water, though, Gus is soaked in disappointment. Normally, his smile glows, and I melt in its heat. Right now, he's wearing a cheap copy. He's about as likely to admit I've heard him as he is to use anesthesia. This isn't like him. I'd expected an argument. I mean, I should have come out to my family a decade ago. If they don't suspect anything, it's because I'm still years younger than Dad when he married Mom. Instead, we behave as if I hadn't just said no to him, albeit tacitly. Gus chatters on about Procopius's Wars of Justinian. He's just finished Volume Four in the original Greek. I talk about stem cells and gene splicing. It's as if tonight were any other night. I'm over, and we're just catching each other up on how our day went. His hands and tones slowly ask if I'm interested, even though he always interests me. I'm still cold, and he covers me with his now warm body. The thoughtful smile, the affectionate way he holds me, nuzzles and kisses my neck. They try so hard to let me know that everything is fine between us, that he desires me as much as I desire him. He's not aggressive. Will go as slowly as I want. Let's visit my family this Christmas, the two of us. My voice is louder than I'd expected. Not the Christ is born Christmas, but the get together with family and give presents to the nieces Christmas. We stopped when my sister and I outgrew the whole Christmas thing, but when she had kids, we started again. With the water falling now, I wanted to skip this year for my own sanity, but stop. He's on his side. His arms around me. He's not as happy as I want him to be. Are you sure? I can wait years if that's what you want. I should have done this a long time ago. I don't think I'll be any more ready. If Gus realizes that I'm outing myself to my family for him, he'll probably refuse to go out of sheer principle. I'm not sure I can do it with him, but I know I can't do it without him. Gus senses that all I want is to be held, so that's all he does. The condoms stay in the drawer. He drifts off to sleep, and I lie next to him, listening to the calm rhythm of his breath. I'm the only son. 
All I can think about is my parents. You're responsible for carrying on the family name because when your sister marries, she will become part of her parents' family. Speech. It freaked me out even before I'd come out to myself. The family gathers in the atrium of my sister's mansion as we stomp the Christmas Eve storm off our boots. The high vaulted ceiling has room for the sweeping staircase and the Christmas tree, big enough to dwarf Gus, that sits in the handrail's curve. Ornaments, tinsel, holly, ivy, a copy of Michelangelo's God giving Adam life tacked taut to the atrium ceiling. We've entered Victorian Christmas land. No half measures here. The disappointment when the family sees that my friend is a man is palpable. It's like the adults were all my niece's age, and someone told them there was no Santa Claus. My mom asks me if we've eaten. According to the textbooks, it's a polite greeting, but she always means it literally. If I tell her I'm not hungry, she'll say, "Even if you're not hungry, you still need to eat." That must be true, since that never causes the water to fall. Fortunately, rather than being forced to eat dinner again, this time I have Gus to derail the conversation. I introduce him to my parents, my sister Michelle, her husband Kevin, their kids Tiffany and Amber, and to my surprise, Kevin's parents. As I negotiate the simultaneous translation, a horrible thought hits me: everyone in the room speaks at least two languages, but there isn't one language everyone speaks. Besides English, Gus speaks only dead languages. Kevin's parents speak Cantonese and Mandarin, but not English. My parents haven't needed English since they retired. Not that theirs was good before. I've trapped Gus in a mansion where he can't speak to half the people. Repeatedly slamming my head against the handrail now would send the wrong message, so I don't. The instant Gus crouches down and starts speaking to the nieces, they stop being scared of him and start playing with him. All physically imposing people seem to be able to win over little kids in mere seconds. They head off to the living room. I start to join them when my sister marches me into her home office. How dare you! She slams the door behind her, and I remind myself that I'm bigger than her now, and it'd be harder for her to beat me up. Are you trying to kill mom and dad? Well, that was easier than I'd expected. She knows, and I didn't even have to tell her. Also, I've broken my record. It usually takes an entire day before I make her angry. At this rate, I could be kicked out of the house and in a motel room by sunrise. I reserve one for every trip. She gets all offended if I don't stay with her at first. No, ideally, mom and dad accept it. That can happen. I want everyone to meet the man I'm going to marry. The future's not fixed, but right now Gus and I are headed towards marriage, so the air stays dry. She slaps me. My cheek stings. I'd slap her back, but I need to out myself to our parents before she throws me out of the house. Mom and Dad always let you get away with being selfish, don't they? I don't do whatever I want. She's blocking the door. Doesn't it matter to you that you're embarrassing Mom and Dad in front of Popo and Gongong? Phrasing things in the form of a question. That and weasel words work as insurance against the water that falls from nowhere. They just make it extremely obvious you're hedging against the truth. Like I knew your husband's parents were even coming. Not that I'm embarrassing Mom and Dad. Well, not this time, anyway. Your job, Huda Pei. My full name in Chinese, including family name, just in case it isn't clear she's furious at me, is to give our parents a grandson. We both already know this. She just enjoys showing me the dry air. I don't think I can do that by myself. I wish I hadn't said that. She slaps me again. My cheek hadn't stopped stinging from the last time.
Do you love mom and dad? Dump that slab of beef, find a Chinese woman to marry, put your penis in her vagina, and make mom and dad a grandson. Make them happy. She turns to leave, but not two steps stop by before she whips around. Coming out to mom and dad. She hasn't ordered me not to do it yet. And you're not coming out to mom and dad. With that command, she leaves. No water. She must mean it. She'll never leave me alone with mom or dad. I close my eyes and remind myself why I'm doing this. Right. Gus. He refuses to stop insisting it's okay if I don't come out to them. He'll understand if I don't. That just makes me want to do what he really wants, but won't say out loud. Coming out would have hurt less a decade ago, and it'll hurt less now than a decade from now. Unless I keep quiet and wait for my entire family to die off. Now there's a cheery thought. Christmas Day. When I wake, Gus is most of the way through his forms, his movements silent and precise. I make an exaggerated show of sneaking out of the bedroom. His face cracks the tiniest smile when I look back at him from the door. My sister pointedly ushered us to different rooms last night. I return to the den where I was supposed to sleep to get ready to join Dad for his daily early morning walk. It's awful. We'll plod in circles at some local mall while I try to get him to talk about himself and he answers in single syllables. At least this time, I'll actually have something to talk to him about. I guess I've had something to talk to him about for years. This time, though, I'm going to do it. When I get downstairs, my sister insists on joining us. First time in... Actually, she's never done the morning walk thing with Dad before. Great, sis. I start back up the stairs. You go with Dad to the mall this time. See you two later. I ignore her sputterings. If she wants Dad to keep thinking she's their good child, she won't dare do anything to me right now, and she'll go with Dad on the mall walk. I'll pay for this later, of course. But by the time she comes back, Mom will have woken up, and I will have had a chat with her. Or at least that was plan B. The morning walk ritual is supposed to be that, after the walk, Dad goes to have his sausage biscuit, luxuriates over a cup of coffee, two if you count the free refill. Only then do we come home. However, they're home too early. Mom's still asleep. My sister has apparently forced Dad to skip the fast food breakfast part of his morning ritual. When I hear the garage door, I lean over the sweeping staircase's handrail. Dad's grumbling. My sister's chirping bright words about how the kitchen has something just as good. She glares at me as she rushes Dad past, like it's my fault he's angry at her. The rest of the day is like an extremely tedious game of basketball. My sister plays a tight defense, but legal. No contact while there are witnesses, since I'm trying to get time alone with my parents. One of them is always a witness. She's even helping Mom make tonight's feast. I'm kneading dough for Mom's steamed stuffed buns when my sister inserts herself into the process. After years of preparing meals for large gatherings together, Mom and I have a system. At some point, she stopped insisting my wife would cook for me someday and started teaching me to cook. Either she got sick of me nagging her, or she realized I needed dough more quickly than she did. Anyway, with some luck, dinner won't be too much later than if my sister had just left us alone. Gus is doing his best imitation of an apartment mate who had nowhere else to go for Christmas. I wish he'd stop that. He spends time with my nieces, my brother-in-law, even my parents, but he only skirts the kitchen. I get that he doesn't want to out me for me, but I like his conversation, too. It's stupid to be in the same house with him and miss him so much. After my first few whacks at the duck with a cleaver, Mom takes the heavy knife away from me, then tells me to go rehydrate mushrooms. It doesn't take a solid day of cooking to make dinner, 
But my sister conveniently has questions about how to make the filling for the stuffed buns and how much sesame oil for the scallion pancakes. She leaves the kitchen occasionally, but never long enough for me to work up the nerve to tell mom. Whenever I leave the kitchen, it isn't two minutes before she finds me claiming she needs my help. I manage to say, yes, I think you're a terrible cook too, in front of her husband and her parents-in-law in our respective languages in common before she drags me to the kitchen. Water doesn't fall when I say that. I have to take my pleasure where I can. When the nieces pull mom away to play with her erector set, she decides my sister and I can finish dinner without her. My sister complains that she needs mom's help. I agree wholeheartedly, but it's not enough. The two of us are stuck with each other. You know why Gus doesn't come into the kitchen, don't you? Despite her casual tone, we both know this is not idle chatter. Does it matter? I'm slicing pickled radishes. You're going to tell me anyway. Do you really think you can keep him? She drops spinach into a skillet pooled with oil. The water coating the spinach hits the oil and splatters back at her. He spent more time with Kevin today than with you. I force myself to slice slowly. Cutting my fingers off is a distraction I don't need right now. My heart pounds in my ears. I'm not sure who I'm more angry at, my sister or my lover. I don't know what you mean, sis. We immigrated here when she was a teenager and I was a little kid. There's a good chance she'll miss the sarcasm. The water gets it, though, when I stay dry. Kevin's a good-looking guy. Maybe... The line would have more impact if she didn't look scared of the spinach sautéing before her. She jabs the spatula as if it were a fencing foil. Kevin's not my type. I'm pretty sure he's not Gus's, but I guess I don't know. It's not like he didn't date lots of men before me. It's not as if they don't all throw themselves at him. My mind spins for seconds before I realize she hasn't actually accused Gus of anything. Kevin is stolidly straight, and if Gus has tried anything with Kevin, not that he would... She'd throw Gus and me out of the house, not taught me with the possibility that Gus might be unfaithful. Maybe what? Usually I don't have this much trouble arranging sliced radishes in a pretty pattern. Right now they're just a bunch of ugly yellow discs. You understand what I'm saying. I shouldn't have to spell it out. Don't you trust your own sister? When I was eight, she convinced me that she was psychic, then foretold exactly how horrible my life would be if I didn't do exactly as she said. It's embarrassing how many years she got away with it. If the water had been falling back then, she'd have flooded the house. Only your family loves you enough to tell you this. Listening to her is like being pelted by rocks. What can he possibly see in you? Dump him and marry a nice Chinese woman instead. Stay with him and he'll cheat on you or dump you. Three words into her last sentence, I know what you'll say. I leap to pull her pan away as I shut off the burner. The water that falls from nowhere drenches her and this burner where the pan was. Had the water hit the pan, the steam and splattered oil would have burned her. Go get warm. I plate the spinach on a dish on the counter. I'll mop up the water. People change. Maybe he'll still love you, even as you shut him out like you have me, mom, and dad. Her arms wrap around her body and her words come out between chatters. We still do, but I wonder why we bother. You'll break mom and dad's heart if you never pass their name and blood on. Are you really willing to abandon your family for that man? She stomps off before I can answer. Hiding so much of myself from my family. In retrospect, that totally counts as shutting them out. There was only so much of my life I could share with them. Once the water began falling, I couldn't even lie to them.
but I hid because I wanted to keep them, not abandon them. Dinner is going well. Too well. My sister is a gracious hostess, too gracious to complain when Gus and I sit next to each other. Instead, her eyes question my every action. Why is my right hand below the table? Why am I spooning tofu onto Gus's plate? What am I saying when I whisper into his ear? Gus eats as if he has pig's ear and cow's stripe every Christmas. When we get home, the next time it's my turn to cook, he's getting pig's blood soup for dinner. I've wasted years afraid he'd hate my favorite foods. My nieces love him. They stop dueling with each other with chopsticks when he asks them to. To half the adults at the table, he might as well be speaking classical Greek. But they laugh at his jokes and listen with rapt attention as he talks about the time it thunderstormed as he and his brother were climbing the steep eastern face of Mount Whitney. My mom resuscitates stories of her childhood in Tainan. Even my sister is sick of those stories. Gus, however, asks about raising chickens and about the grandmother I barely remember. Okay, I'm translating like mad, but the point is they enjoy Gus's company and Gus enjoys theirs. In the rapid-fire exchange of words, my parents surprised me by asking me about my research in biotech. I almost forget about the impending doom hanging over me like an uttered paradox. My sister's father-in-law says as I'm clearing the table after dinner, No family meal is complete without the marriage question. Actually, it's always some variant of, You're over 30, where's the grandson? Marriage is just a necessary precondition. I think I'm smiling blandly, but Gus's eyes reach mine and I realize he sees the marriage question on my face. It's hard to believe the man doesn't read minds. My sister's glare is this pressure that squeezes my chest. Telling everyone I haven't met the right woman might humidify the air, but it won't cause the water to fall. It's true, so I won't even feel any angst. Gus will understand, and for once, my sister will be happy with me. She and I can't be in the same room for ten minutes, but we've always wanted the best for each other. But she doesn't need to tell me what that is anymore. Gus, I've come this far, I might as well go all the way. Providing a grandson can't be that important to the grand scheme of things. Kevin's parents still love him. Maybe mine will still love me. And they seem to like Gus as my friend. Now that they know he's proposed, maybe they'll also love him as their son-in-law. My sister's fury explodes and overwhelms every other reaction in the room. Her words are clearly in English, but the only ones that make any sense are get out and don't ever come back. Kevin's trying to calm her down. Gus weaves around the family towards me. However, I'm upstairs in the bedroom before I realize I've moved. Gus is extremely tidy. It's easy to repack his luggage. I never unpacked, so I don't have to repack. He's such a generous soul. For all I know, he may still think we're not leaving. I shouldn't have left him downstairs. Maybe the nieces can translate for him. Matt, you're leaving out of spite. The door jam neatly frames Gus. Okay, your sister had a bad reaction, but Po Po and Gong Gong don't seem to be taking it badly. I blink and shake my head. It takes me a few seconds to realize he's talking about my parents. Did you just call my parents Po Po and Gong Gong? Yeah, Po Po and Gong Gong. He looks confused. I tried to call them Mr. and Mrs. Ho this afternoon, but they both corrected me before I got past hello. Am I pronouncing it wrong? We can work on that, but that's not my point. I shot a suitcase. Po Po means husband's mother, 
and Gonggong means husband's father. That he can call them that without water falling on him. They've already figured us out. Gus steps into the room to make space for Mom, trying to burrow past him. Hi, Po Po. Lonely boy. My mother looks at Gus but points at me. He always lonely boy. I really wish she just let me translate for her. In Chinese, she's effortlessly witty and erudite. That's the person I want Gus to know, not the inchoate stranger I knew until I'd spent a decade trying to get my Chinese up to snuff. Gus takes her hand and doesn't speak too loud or down to her, metaphorically. That is, literally, he's about a foot taller than Mom. Not if I can help it. Po po. He's trying too hard to imitate the way I said it, and now he's overpronouncing. I'll make sure he's never lonely again. Mom turns to me. At first, I think she wants a translation, but she must have understood because she doesn't give me a chance to speak. You are studying biological sciences. Can you translate for me? There are two genes. Okay, this is an example of her being witty or erudite. My mom is also very practical and direct. I hear my heart pound. Gus is looking at me for a translation. We don't have a relationship if I filter what he hears. She said, "You're a biotech researcher. Can you give me a grandson, one with genes from both of you?" Gus must have really impressed her. What were you two talking about this afternoon? Not that. He looks as surprised as I feel. We've never discussed kids. He turns back to her. We need to talk about it. And I need to win a Nobel Prize if she's dead set on a grandson with both our genes. Parents, the clincher is that she leaves, trusting Gus to talk me back from the edge. Normally, she tells me that once Michelle calms down, she'll want me to stay. Michelle's only angry at me because she loves me, but now it's Gus's job to keep me civil. Mom's probably so happy about this she doesn't care that Gus is a guy. Gus isn't any better at keeping me from the edge than Mom, though. The motel is a five-minute drive from my sister's house, but it feels like another planet. For one thing, we've gone from Victorian Christmas land to operating surgery land. It still smells like pine, but the flat medicinal one. For another, when I drop my suitcase and curl into a ball on the bed, it's as if I've held one of Gus's bizarre isometric exercises for weeks, and I finally let go. Just like the end of any other trip home, except this time, I'm still tethered to the world. Gus stands at the door. Snowflakes glisten off his hair and hooded sweatshirt. They're your only blood relatives in the country. Gus flicks on the light and clicks the door shut. When I turn away, his weight dents the bed. My body falls towards his. Matt, don't freeze me out too. Gus's words pummel me, no matter how lightly he tosses them. My own words scrape my throat. I taste salt and metal when I swallow. Lying, then letting the water wash my throat and fill my lungs tempts me as much as pretending Gus isn't sitting on the bed. Every trip, I decide I'll sort things out later. Then I go home and pretend the trip never happened. That won't work this time. Gus is, if nothing else, a witness and a reminder. Fine, I sit up and stare at the carpet. Once I gave Mom flowers for Mother's Day, and Michelle humiliated me because flowers wilt, and how dare I send Mom something that would die? Michelle accused me of ruining her birthday because one year I sent her a card with blue birds on it, like I knew her parakeet had drowned itself in her toilet. One Christmas Eve, Michelle asked me to shave for Christmas Day. I didn't really have any stubble, so I forgot. 
She couldn't understand why I refused to do something to make her happy, especially something so simple, so she ambushed me with a razor. I wish she had better aim. Shaving cream steams your eyes. For weeks, people wondered why I had scars around my neck and on my face. Is that enough, or do you want more? Why should I have to keep putting up with her? I am so tired. My body won't stop shaking. Air won't stay in my lungs. Melted snow pools around my boots. I wish Gus weren't looming over me. I wish he were in his apartment or visiting his own family. Gus sits, mouth agape for a moment. But if he expected water to fall on me, he's done a terrific job of not showing it. His arm straps across my shoulders and pulls me to him. He presses a finger under my chin and guides my head until I face him. Part of me wants to bolt, get into the rental car and find somewhere else to stay for the night. The rest of me knows that'll hurt Gus and he'll be too much the hero to admit it. Like screwing up all of my relationships at the same time is a good idea. You shouldn't have to put up with her. Gus unzips my jacket, then peels it off me. But are you going to write your parents off too? Say we have a kid, and I'm not saying we should or shouldn't. Don't you want the kid to know the grandparents? So I'm right and she wins anyway? I rub my face. Telling me I'm right is a change. Once mom told me everything Michelle does to me, she does because she loves me and wants the best for me. Why couldn't she just hate me instead, I asked. That talk didn't go well. What do you mean by winning? Gus shrugs. He hangs my jacket on the coat rack next to the door. You broke today. It happens. Maybe some time away from her is a good thing. Tomorrow we'll go back and we'll try it again, okay? If you want, I'll stick to you the whole day. I take a deep breath. It feels like the first time my lungs have expanded in hours. The pine and wet leather assault my nose. Sure. I take off my boots. Melted snow has soaked through to my socks. My feet are cold and clammy. Gus is still standing at the door. I'll be back in a few hours. Gus holds a hand up to interrupt me when I ask him to stay. You don't want me around, and frankly, right now you're too wigged out to be good company. I know you're not angry at me, but it'll be better in the long run if I leave now while we're still on speaking terms. I'd protest, but that would just make his point. Gus turns out the lights before he leaves. The comforter is wet from the melted snow. It sticks to my skin when I fall into bed. I curl up into a ball and roll the comforter before me. Buried, I finally start to relax. This time, I have left the world, but it still doesn't feel right. The mattress ought to be sunk deeper. My arms should be around the hulk of a man who can't ever admit hurt or pain. I should be immersed in the warmth of his body as he is in mine. I love you, Gus. Now, I just have to figure out how to say it while he's in the room. Snow evaporates off the comforter. I'm warm and dry. I wriggle my head out. Flowers and ozone replace the smell of pine. A spring breeze grazes me. I stare at the door in the dark, wishing it would open. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is John's. John, what can I say? Massive thank you, sir. Thank you so much. And for Tor.com is letting us play this story. Well, that is it. I hope you've enjoyed the day's show. And like I say, it's actually now when I send this file up and press play, I'm going into the garden to build a fence with drills, cement, hammers and nails and all sorts of stuff like that. And 
Viva la France! <laughs> Let's see if they can do any better. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.